Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the defense bar about the intersection of science and litigation. Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. This is Dr. Bill Kanaski. We are going to talk more reptile again today. You can never get enough reptile in this world, considering what's going on out there in civil litigation. Uh, reptile is alive and well. And an important topic that I don't think gets enough discussion is the whole appellate uh, part uh, of this, because um, several of these nuclear verdicts, um, if you get hit with one, you're certainly going to want to uh, appeal it, and there's certain things that you have to do before, during, and after your trial. So we have special guests today, uh, appellate attorneys, appellate attorneys, and uh, Steve Fleischman is going to be joining us, along with his colleague Rob Wright. Uh, they're from the law firm of Horvitz and Levy uh, out on the West Coast, and I think it's going to be a great discussion because most of the reptile talks. Uh, fail to cover uh, much of the appellate process and I think it's uh, from and Steve and I have given uh, a bunch of talks together and what I've learned is that you better have your ducks in a row or you could be facing some trouble when you get to the appellate issue. Uh, Steve and Robbie there? Yep. Outstanding. Thank you so much for uh, joining uh, this podcast. Can can one of you take a moment and just give us the 30-second kind of commercial about your law firm uh, and, and the types of uh, cases you guys handle, just to orient our audience? Sure. So Horvitz and Levy was founded about 50 years ago by Ellis Horvitz and Barry Levy, and we specialized almost exclusively in appeals in civil cases. I say almost because more and more were being retained by clients to monitor trials and to assist trial counsel on record preservation issues and preserving issues for appeal. And reptile is certainly one of those areas we're retained to help trial counsel uh, preserve the record on. Excellent. Just out of curiosity, what, <laughs> what is it like to monitor a trial and do you ever get any pushback from trial counsel? Because I would think if somebody is coming and watching me every day and breathing down my back, it may that may impede my performance. Have you had any kind of uh, drama with, with any of those situations, or has it been pretty low-key? The answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> we have had some drama. Most of the time, trial counsel are very appreciative. We are there. We're a huge resource. Issues come up during every trial, whether they're evidentiary issues or some other issues. Sure. We have people back in the office that are available to do research. We get answers back quickly. Once in a while, do we have a trial counsel, you know, sort of resent having someone look over their shoulder? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, that, that happens, but yeah. that is by far the um, minority. I'd say that happens less than one in 10 times. Yeah, I'd say that really is a minority because... Good. When I'm talking to trial counsel, what I tell them up front is I don't know how to try a case. I don't know how to, to persuade the jury. That's not my role. I'm, I'm the appellate counsel. So my role is the law. Yeah. And, and sometimes we are there literally just to observe and prepare reports for the insurance company so the insurance company doesn't have to have yeah. someone there. And, you know, candidly, if they'd rather, you know, would you rather have somebody there who's a resource for you or would you rather have the person there that's paying your bills um, yeah. 
watching you. Um, and like I say, most the vast majority of the time it works out well. Well, that's, that's outstanding. Um, so before we get started officially, I'm kind of dying to ask you, both of you, a, a personal question because I'm kind of fascinated by this. How does one make the decision to go into appellate law? When did this? When did this click for both of you? Did you try something else and said, "Hey, I don't like this. I think I want to go do appeals," or was it kind of appeals from the start? You know, when it really clicked for me was before I went to law school. So, I, I was interested in writing and I was interested in research, and appellate law seemed really attractive even before I set foot in law school. Interesting. For, for me, during uh, after my first year of law school, I worked at the Court of Appeal in Los Angeles, and I saw Lawrence Tribe argue a case in the morning, and then I saw the Rock Hudson AIDS case argued in the afternoon, and I said, you know, this could kind of be fun if I ever get the opportunity. And um, I tell people I tried six cases by myself, criminal cases, and I liked it so much I wanted to be an appellate attorney. <laughs> a point taken, point taken. Well, let's jump into this reptile uh, topic. This is, I remember back in the days, you know, 2011, 2012, when we really started um, aggressively uh, trying to understand this phenomenon, uh, writing about it, speaking about it. And I was shocked at the time, and I'm sure you guys heard the same thing, when there was a lot of doubt in reptile. And I think a lot of veteran trial attorneys were like, ah, blah, 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 this is this is never going to survive, this is just another fad. Um, but that's not what's happened. It's, it's, uh, um, it has totally survived. And uh, Steve, I know you want to tell your Vegas uh, story, and I really want to start there, but um, I, I want to make it clear to, to the audience is that there's been no um, um, downturn or any um, lack of... Uh, uh, reptile things happening out there. Uh, it's alive. It's well. I think it's it's continuing to grow and spread, particularly with all of their um, their training opportunities. Just just keep multiplying. Um, Steve, I'm assuming you agree that uh, the reptile is alive and well and not going anywhere anytime soon. Absolutely true. Um, it candidly does work just like anchoring works yeah. from the plaintiff's perspective. And um, until judges start putting an end to it, it's going to continue to work. Wow. Um, and that's I think that's a big problem because <laughs> I still, even today, I still don't think a lot of judges even understand what in the world's going on. Some of them claim they've never even heard about it. I, I just don't know how that's possible. I had a case, a judge, we filed a reptile motion. He ruled on it. Two years later, unrelated to that case, he emailed me. He said, Steve, I found one of your amicus briefs online. I've been asked to talk about this reptile theory. Can I use your brief? I said, sure, absolutely, Your Honor. Um, can I send you some other stuff? And one of the things I sent him was the motion in limine that had been filed in his case. And, you know, he replied, LOL, he did not remember that the motion had been filed in his case. Oh, my <laughs> if, you, if you go to the website of Ball and Keenan, who wrote the you know the reptile manual, yeah, they boast about seven point seven billion in reptile verdicts and settlements. Yeah, billion with a B. So yeah, this is a this is a huge issue. And the they like, they of, love to advertise. They love to advertise when they win. Oh man. Yes. The the other part of the equation is for the longest time, and it may still be true, the organized plaintiffs bar 
denies publicly that reptile exists. It's insane. Uh, Absolutely yeah. insane. <laughs> it's like the movie Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you can't talk about Fight Club. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the plaintiff's bar in official filings in the Court of Appeal, in court, they they don't know what reptile is, but they know all the arguments about why it's permissible. That's, yeah, it, it's kind of infuriating when you, th you think about it when you're making objections at trial and they're like putting up their hands, Your Honor, I don't, reptile? Reptile, schmeptile, I've never heard of this. I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, it's pathetic, but it is, it is what they're doing. Uh, Steve, tell your Vegas story. So I was monitoring a personal injury trial in Las Vegas, and it was very extended voir dire. And the um, judge allowed the plaintiff to use, I believe it was a 375 question jury questionnaire that all the jurors filled out ahead of time, yeah. mailed it in, and then everyone had a chance to review it. And conservatively, I'd say 25 to 33 percent of the questions on there were hardcore reptile issues. Do you believe um, defendants should conduct themselves in the safest manner possible? Do you understand as a juror you'd be the consciousness of the community? I mean, they weren't really um, uh, vague about it. Um, the trial judge denied the defense motion in limine, and then we get to voir dire, and the first day of voir dire by plaintiff's counsel to the panel was pretty hardcore conditioning on reptile theories. Fast forward to the second day, and plaintiff's counsel in the morning asked the panel as a whole, does anyone feel their bias one way or another in favor or against one of the parties? And a juror in the front row who thought he was the smartest guy in the room, raised his hand and said, yes, I feel that you are using reptile brain strategies on us, <laughs> and I don't like that because I like arguments based on reason rather than emotion. And so plaintiff's counsel said, you know, thank you for being candid, and he asked a few more questions and went to sidebar. Um, and there was a sidebar in the judge's chambers, and part of the story is why I never do anything off the record. But um, that juror was excused for cause. Later in the afternoon, defense counsel, his very last question of the day for the panel was, did anyone know what that guy was talking about when he said <laughs> reptile? Um, and the whole veneer went crazy. Um, one person shouted out, no, but I'm going to look it up tonight. Oh, Another right. person said, <laughs> um, well, aren't you going to tell us? And defense counsel said, no, I wish I could, but I can't. Long story short, the next day we spent about four hours going over the video of that voir dire like it was a Zapruder film going <laughs> back and forth. And uh, the judge declared a mistrial and two months later uh, awarded $81,000 in sanctions against the defense attorney wow. for what transpired. Um, in my opinion, in the 25 years or so I've been practicing law, that was one of the greatest injustices I had ever been a part of. Now, the good news is uh, the Nevada Supreme Court on a writ set the sanctions aside, but even that was a two-to-one decision. Um, the opinion's unpublished, doesn't really mention reptile except in passing. Um, but that's my Las Vegas story. Maybe jurors are beginning to figure it out. <laughs> that's pretty funny. So, um, Rob, 
this is a problem that's not going to go away anytime uh, soon. So it'd be great to get your perspective from a, a legal standpoint and, and, and the legal arguments that, particularly as defense counsel, that you're going to have to consider as you, uh, not just at trial, but as you're entering into trial. Absolutely. And Steve's story made me think that, I guess, there's that saying about what goes on in Las Vegas stays there, <laughs> but the, the reptile theory didn't stay there. It, no. It's broader. Um, so, yeah, so as appellate counsel, we tend to look, A, for sort of authorities that are directly on point dealing with the reptile theory, and Steve's going to talk about those some. And then there aren't a lot of those, so we tend to reason by analogy, and we look to cases dealing with more traditional sort of constraints on argument at trial and then see whether those fit the reptile theory. And I, I don't think the reptile theory needs a lot of introduction, no. particularly to your, your audience here, but basically the idea is that counsel at trial couch the defendant's conduct in terms of it being a threat to the community's safety and a threat to the juror's own interests. Yep. And so we look for cases dealing with similar issues. One sort of line of cases deal with the golden rule argument. Mm -hmm. And I suspect everyone knows the golden rule, but you know, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And so how does that apply at trial? Well, that comes up at trial because under a golden rule argument, what counsel will do is um, ask the jurors to place themselves in the position of a party. So that, that's considered a golden rule argument. And there's a case from the D.C. Circuit from 2013 called Cottle versus District of Columbia. And it says a golden rule argument is universally condemned because it encourages the jury to depart from neutrality and, and to decide the case based on really personal interest. And so sort of using my own words, that what is happening with the golden rule argument is you're asking the jurors to become partisan advocates for the party rather than objective triers of fact. And I'm sure something that you've dealt with a lot, Bill, is um, jury selection, right? Yep. And in jury selection, you know, are we looking to get that biased, you know, self-interested juror onto the case? Is that the whole idea of jury voir dire? Well, we want to get those. We want to get the bad ones off. I know that. <laughs> right, but, but 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 the idea of the legal system is you want the impartial, objective juror. You want a juror who's not interested in the case. You don't want to have on the jury, you know, the the sister of the plaintiff, for example. Um, I had one judge say, when a plaintiff's attorney said the jury is supposed to be the consciousness of the community, the judge said no. They're supposed to be neutral, dispassionate triers of fact. Right. So with both the golden rule and the reptile theory, what is happening is lawyers are trying to convert the jurors into interested, unobjective yeah. sort of participants in the process. And sort of an interesting case that kind of points us out a little bit, still dealing with the golden rule situation, is um, Collins versus Union Pacific. It's a California Court of Appeal decision. And in that case, what the plaintiff's lawyer did was sort of make an argument that 
to the jury that in deciding damages, the jury should consider how much money you would have to offer in a newspaper ad for someone to take the plaintiff's place and have the plaintiff's injuries. And the Court of Appeal looked at that argument and said, that is impermissible argument. That's, a, that's an impermissible golden rule argument because you're asking the jurors to become sort of unobjective, to become interested, self-interested in the case because you're asking the jurors to put themselves in the shoes of the plaintiff. And that's an impermissible yeah. argument. And yeah. likewise... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, as I say, especially in, in jury selection, um, you see them doing that. And I've seen many of defense counsel uh, strenuously object, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of judges aren't really being that helpful <laughs> uh, with these types of issues. Um, and that's kind of disconcerting. Right. And so if you are arguing this to the court, you can look to authorities that address the golden rule argument and hold that the golden rule argument is impermissible. And you can say, we have the same problem with the reptile theory, because the reptile theory, just like the golden rule argument, is violating the idea that the jurors are supposed to impartially determine the case based on the evidence specific to the plaintiff. So our defense counsel, so the way to deal with this more procedurally is, are these things you can try to torpedo with, with motions and limine, or is this something where you would have to kind of wait for something to happen and object uh, in real time, or both, I guess? I think where you need to start is long before trial. In fact, you need to start before the depositions. You need to prepare your witnesses before they ever undergo deposition because by the end of the deposition, you could have lost the case if you haven't prepared your witnesses. That's correct. That, well, I do a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. This is Steve. I absolutely agree. The, the problem with waiting for the motion in limine is it's too late by then mm -hmm. in many respects. And as we'll get to, trial courts across the nation are all over the world how they deal with reptile objections um, on motions and lemonade. And how is that possible? I, I, I just, I guess the thing that strikes me is what you just said is that depending on your venue, I mean, the, there's this zero consistency across the board for the same exact theory. It's all over the place. And I, why do you think that is? Well, I think on evidentiary motions and lemonade, judges have different views and one view is I want to know what the legal issue is I want to make the ruling now on the papers to streamline the trial and make sure everyone knows the ground rules the other judicial view and this is this includes reptile but includes lots of other things is I want to hear the evidence I want to see how this case unfolds and I'm willing to make that type of decision on the fly. And reptile aside, there are just different views. Um, some judges really like motions eliminate, others don't. They, they wanna hear the evidence, they wanna hear outcomes in. Um, 
And that, I think, is the core reason why you get these different rulings across the country, in addition to the fact that lots of judges still don't know what this is yeah. um, and judicial philosophy. Have Has there been any different, and I don't know the answer to this question, it's really never really come up in any of our talks, uh, Steve, but do you, is there... Do you handle this stuff differently if you're in state court versus federal court, or, or is it pretty much the same formula? I think it's largely the same formula. Um, federal this is I'm stereotyping, but by and large, federal judges are more likely to make decisive decisions on the paper than state court judges, at least in California. That's my experience. Mm -hmm. They are willing. They are willing to make tough calls. Um, and proceed. Having said that, I have no reason to believe I haven't seen any federal cases addressing reptile um, in any detail. So I I can't I can't address that. When we get to state appellate courts, um, every state appellate court to address reptile, to my knowledge, has ruled that it's improper. Interesting. And one thing you have to distinguish, Bill, is that. It's perfectly fine to make sort of a passionate argument in closing argument. You expect attorneys to do that. So sometimes I think if judges are allowing reptile argument in, it's because they think that, well, this is a passionate argument. Arguments don't have to be sterile. Um, but they're not hearing, perhaps, from defense counsel that why this really is an impermissible argument why it really is going beyond just a passionate argument. It's going to an argument that seeks to make the jurors partisans in the case. Yeah, and the other thing that they're doing, which is blatant, I mean, they're obviously blatantly trying to redefine the standard of care to something that's completely unattainable. And what's not in the jury, that's why I always I instruct defense counsel, uh, even in voir dire, but even in opening statement, depending on how aggressive to get, is you, know, you tell the jury, you know, the word safety is not going to appear anywhere in the jury instructions. <laughs> uh, needlessly in danger or unnecessary risk. None of these phrases are actually in the jury instructions and try to get the jury to remember, um, you know, there there is a set of rules you need to follow as jurors, and it's called the jury instructions, rather than just falling uh, victim to this whole public health community, you know, what they call them, the guardians of community safety is what they're calling them. Uh, it's really easy to suck a juror in that way. Absolutely. And, and it seems really easy to suck a witness into oh. that trap during deposition as well. It happens far too often. The good thing is that we've developed a really good system to defeat um, the reptile um, maneuvers and uh, tactics, but it does take it takes more time uh, with the witness, and um, I've seen I've seen very smart, good-natured witnesses get destroyed very very badly <laughs> by reptile questioners because they're not really prepared for the psychological warfare involved, and that's really what it is. They're prepared on the the case file, they're prepared on the documents, but until they have it really diagrammed out for them and, and um, you really have to show them the reptile playbook and that's what I do. I, 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 uh, I draw it for them on a whiteboard and then as that's up I play, and, you know, Steve you've seen my countless videos um, 
play them the videos to show them, you know, how the sequencing of the questions work, um, the key words and phrases that you have to be um, looking for as the witness, because if they don't go through that types of training, they will automatically agree with all the, you know, quote unquote safety rules. And then once you have a witness with, you know, agreeing to all the safety rules, um, they're in big, big trouble because now the attorney is going to go to the case facts and the case facts are going to essentially violate the safety rules. And that's how um, I, I see a lot of these cases um, going south in, in discovery. And then once that happens and you you have that witness on videotape, uh, it, it's pretty tough to go to trial and win at that point. And so I think, you know, there's this... Um, the topic of nuclear verdicts, everybody's talking about it now. Defense bar is in a panic. Um, I, th I, th I personally think very quietly there's a lot of nuclear settlements going on that we're not hearing about. What do, what do you think about that? Absolutely true. Um, numbers in L.A. on verdicts are going through the roof, and that's translating into settlements. Um, uh, Rob? That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I mean, right. as appellate lawyers, when cases cases usually settle before we get involved, but the ones we are involved in, yeah, the numbers are only headed in one direction. It is a problem. Uh, we just wrote um, our new paper, which I think that you've you've read, and uh, we're trying to address the issue. But um, I think I think the defense bar and and particularly the insurance defense industry is going to have to take a long look in the mirror on, on how they're doing things because I think that the plaintiff's bar certainly has the full court press going <laughs> and they're pressing and pressing and pressing. And until the defense, um, and uh, uh, Bob Tyson talks a lot about this in his new nuclear verdict book. He's like, you know, we gotta, we gotta fight back and you can't, you can't wait two years to start fighting. You, you've got to start fighting from the opening bell and I'm hoping that uh, that word type kind of spreads uh, to DRI and CLM and all these um, conferences that they have. But I, I would like to hear more attorneys, whether it be on webcasts or podcasts or, or, or at live presentations, just talk about the whole you know, philosophy of the defense bar and how it's, it's kind of not working anymore. They're going to have to do something different. What do you think? I agree, and the other big part of that discussion has got to be anchoring. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> There's a new opinion out in uh, out in California that you know we can talk about how to distinguish it, but it basically blesses anchoring in voir dire. And there's one line in the opinion that I yeah. laugh at every time I read. It says, I saw "Well, that. yeah, it couldn't <laughs> have really been prejudicial to the defense because the." Plaintiff asked for two hundred million and only got fifty million, so obviously it wasn't an effective strategy. I mean, no matter how many times you read that, um, it just makes less and less sense when you read it in context. It's a real, it's a real head scratcher. But yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, and um, I hope the defense bar really, you know, gets on its toes and um, starts starts really uh, going on the attack. Uh, Steve, do you want to go through some of these appellate uh, cases sure. and kind of talk about kind of from an evolution, kind of where we were, uh, where we are now, and, and kind of where you think this is all going? Sure. So the good news is on the appellate level, 
I'm going to talk about five cases, and all five have held that reptile is improper. To my knowledge, there was no appellate decision in the United States which has held reptile is proper as a argument strategy. That's the good news. The bad news is, in lots of these cases, courts have held that it's improper, but it was waived because defense counsel didn't, uh, didn't preserve the record in the right way. So the first case is called Regalado. That's from uh, the California Court of Appeal in 2016. And Regalado, uh, the plaintiff's attorney gave your classic hardcore reptile closing argument. You are the consciousness of the community. You decide what's right and what's wrong. Um, your purpose, the reason we have courtrooms is to keep the community safe. Yeah, they laid it on heavy. I read that whole closing, and boy, they, they laid it on heavy. And that went on without objection. And then at a break, defense counsel made a reptile objection. And the judge said, too late, overruled. So it goes up on appeal, and, and the Court of Appeal went out of its way to hold that this was improper when it really didn't have to. But the analysis I found that was interesting is the Court of Appeal, like Rob talked about, you know, golden rule arguments being improper. One argument that's improper, uh, for example, is if you, a defense represents a governmental entity. It's improper to go to the jury and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, your tax dollars are better spent on schools, police, fire departments, rather than giving it to plaintiffs, to the plaintiff in this case. Yeah. Why, why is that improper? Because it gives the jury an interest in the outcome of the case in their capacity as a taxpayer, in their capacity as a member of the community that benefits from schools, police, fire departments. And that's what the Court of Appeal held. It held that it's improper under that line of cases. But the Court of Appeal didn't grant a new trial because, um, because defense counsel waited too long to object. And the court thought, and I disagree with this part of the decision, but the court thought that the comments were limited and were not prejudicial. So that was the first case. Um, out there, and Regalado uh, is cited in every defense motion on uh, reptile out in California anyway, and some trial judges get it, and some of them are still reluctant. The, um, the second case that I wanted to talk about is, from, is called Bryson. It's an unpublished decision from the Michigan Court of Appeal in 2018, but Michigan unpublished cases are citable, and if you're in another jurisdiction, it wouldn't be binding in any event, but it's citable. And Bryson was a med mal case, and plaintiff's counsel did the hardcore, you know, doctors should follow the safest course of um, procedures possible. They must conduct themselves in the safest manner possible. And the Court of Appeal held that's error, because that's the wrong legal standard. The question isn't for the jury to decide. The question isn't, did the defendant act in the safest way possible? The issue is, did the, um, did the defense act reasonably? And then the court went on to do a harmless error analysis and found that it was harmless. Um, so same, same sort of problem there. 
A more recent case is called Fitzpatrick versus Wendy's Old Fashioned Hamburgers from the Court of Appeal in Massachusetts. And this was a case where a plaintiff went to a Wendy's, uh, ordered a hamburger, bit into it, and there was a piece of bone in the hamburger and caused the plaintiff to chip a tooth. And plaintiff did, again, hardcore uh, reptile strategy. You're the consciousness of the community. You have, um, we have all these safety rules that are designed to protect the community. Um, and the trial judge granted a mistrial saying, holding explicitly that reptile was improper. And then there was a second trial, then the appealed, and this appellate decision is following the second case. And the issue was, did the trial judge err in granting the first mistrial? And the Court of Appeal in this case does not identify this specifically as being a reptile argument. It just talks about the issues generically. Um, but it says the us versus them, the community of big companies, um, all of those type of arguments were improper, um, especially the argument about you as jurors, when you're done with this case, you have to go back and think, um, were safety rules violated? Did you make the community less safe? Um, that type of argument the court held was improper. Procedurally, the court thought the trial judge applied the wrong standard on the mistrial motion, so it, re it remanded the case for the trial judge to reconsider the prejudice analysis. Lastly, those two cases out of Kansas, Castleberry versus DeBrot and Perez versus Ramon. Um, Castleberry does not, is from the Supreme Court, Castleberry does not identify this as a reptile argument per se, but it was, you know, it was very similar to Bryson. It was a med mal case. You have to, the doctor is supposed to um, uh, use the safest measures possible. You, the jury, are the consciousness of the community. Um, and the court held that was improper without identifying it as reptile per se. Perez identifies it as um, a reptile argument, explains in great detail what the reptile theory is, and then doesn't really address it other than to say um, there was no error because the issue wasn't preserved. And that, to my knowledge, is the state of the law on appellate decisions addressing reptile. I have read dozens and dozens of trial court decisions from around the United States and say with complete certainty there is no consistency on how the courts rule on them. There's just sort of two points I want to make. One is there's an interesting case out of Massachusetts called Wallstrom. And Mr. Keenan was the trial attorney in that case. And the trial court granted a new trial on the grounds that Mr. Keenan's arguments were improper. What's interesting about that case was defense counsel kept saying, this is Keenan, this is the reptile book, this is the playbook that he used, this is improper. And the trial judge said, look, I get all of that, but I don't care what he wrote in his reptile book. I'm just going to look at this, were these arguments proper or not? 
and the court said they were improper. The one thing that comes out reading all of these decisions, and my one suggest for trial counsel is, if there's any consistency among the cases that deny the defense motions in limine, it's this. A lot of judges just say, I don't know what you're talking about, or this is overbroad, or you got to tell me what you're asking about. And we recommend attaching deposition transcripts and identifying specific words, phrases, consciousness to the community, safety rules, etc., and giving the judge a specific target so that at least you can address the judge's concern um, in that respect. Excellent. Well, about to wrap it up here, uh, but I want to get Rob's kind of final thoughts uh, to see kind of where he thinks. Well, I guess the question is, is defense do, doing a good job? <laughs> and where is this? Where where in the world is this all going? Because I don't think anybody early on thought this problem would explode uh, and multiply exponentially, being the whole reptile uh, issue. Uh, Rob, what are your thoughts on where this where this train's going? To your question, is the defense doing a good job? Three areas where the defense can improve. One, early in the case, preparing the witnesses so when they're deposed, they know how to answer these reptile questions. And then with the motions in limine that Steve was just talking about, you need to bring those motions in limine, you need to educate the judge. But as Steve was suggesting, you need to do more than just generally talk about reptile. You need to show why the plaintiff's counsel in this case is going to present impermissible arguments. So attach pages from the deposition transcripts. Be specific. Really, really show exactly why something bad is going to happen unless the judge rules. And then the third area where defense counsel can definitely do a better job, object, object, object. You've got to object, as Steve was mentioning, in a lot of these cases, the Court of Appeal will say, yeah, that was impermissible reptile argument, but it wasn't preserved. And, and even beyond just objecting, in a lot of jurisdictions, you have to request an admonition, move for a mistrial. I won't go into all the you know, fun, appellate, nerdy concepts, but, but you've got to preserve these issues. And the one thing I would add to that is, um, and Bill, I know you've written papers on this and given seminars on it, but if you're going to lose the uh, motion in limine on reptile and the judge indicates um, that these type of arguments are permissible, how to, how to use reverse reptile tactics against a plaintiff or against a co-defendant? Um, that's a whole seminar in and of itself. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, if courts aren't going to limit it, then I think defense counsel needs to, um, uh, needs to learn how to use it to their advantage. Yeah, we could talk about that for a whole other 45 minutes. And we probably will. I'll probably end up getting uh, our friend Paul uh, on the line to talk about reverse reptile because I do think in certain scenarios um, not only is it a smart thing to do but um, you better do it otherwise you may not win Uh, Rob and Steve thank you so much for being on the podcast I think this is a great topic and uh, we'll keep in touch and uh, hopefully the defense bar uh, really steps up to the plate here and um, gets more aggressive and, and, and does the right thing here against the reptile folks thanks Bill thanks for having us All right, take take care guys 
Well, there you have it. Um, very good discussion there with Rob and Steve on the various Sapella things going on with Reptile. Uh, we'll make sure that we have them back on if uh, we have some uh, other rulings that come up. But um, until next time, this is Dr. Bill Kanaski, and we will see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.